Hey everyone, it's Landon. This is part three of Fluid and Electrolytes, where we talk about electrolytes and their disturbances. If you haven't listened to part one or two, we recommend you do that first. Happy listening. Uh, all right, I guess if we've talked about biology and anatomy and physiology, let's move on to chemistry. So electrolytes in the body have either a negative or positive charge, and we call the negative ones anions and positive ones cations. If you have trouble remembering that, I had an instructor once who said, think of the T in cation as a positive symbol. Uh, and there you go. If you need a little remembery thing. I guess I just said remembery. I don't know where that came from. Electrolytes play a vital role in maintaining homeostasis within the body, obviously. We measure them on almost every patient that comes into our emergency department. They help regulate myocardial and neurological function, fluid balance, oxygen delivery, acid-base balance, and pretty well everything biological in your body. Electrolytes are important because they're what cells, especially nerves, heart, and muscle, use to maintain voltages across their cell membranes and to carry electrical impulses. And this is really fascinating okay, I won't get too fascinated or I'll go for two hours, but it's really fascinating that, that the, these are positive and electrically charged ions, which are pretty well establishing an electrical system like what you have in your house. Obviously not exactly the same. Your house does not run on a sodium potassium pump, or if it does, then great for you. But it is fascinating that the concepts here are largely similar. Mm-hmm. So it is normal for electrolyte levels to fluctuate. They're produced and controlled with feedback loops. And when the kidneys or adrenal glands sense a deficit or an imbalance of a particular electrolyte, um, they may cause it to be reabsorbed. Or if there's too much of it, they may cause it to be excreted. Now, the thing is, it can't make it from nothing. So we, we are not little nuclear reactors. We cannot create new elements from ones that currently exist. So there does need to be a supply of these electrolytes However, if you have too much, we can usually get rid of it. And there's a few that we have trouble getting rid of. So the six major electrolytes in the body are sodium, potassium, chloride, bicarb, calcium, and phosphate. Or just pull out your electrolyte panel, lab results, and there's a reason we're measuring all those because they're the important ones. Sodium and chloride are the major electrolytes in the extracellular fluid and exert most of their effects outside the cell. Sodium is the major cation and chloride is the major anion in the body. So the two of them like to be married together, Mm -hmm. but in the body, they don't join together as sodium chloride. But I just said a word there, sodium chloride, that most of you are probably familiar with. It's also saline. Mm -hmm. So when we give saline, they split very quickly into the sodium cation and the chloride anion uh, one-to-one because they're a a stable bond. So calcium and bicarbonate are the two, are two other electrolytes found in the extracellular fluid, much smaller amounts. Potassium, phosphate, and magnesium are the most abundant electrolytes inside the cell, so in the intracellular fluid. And potassium is the major cation in the intracellular fluid. So each electrolyte plays a specific role in the body here. The way to remember it, sodium's outside the cell, potassium's inside the cell, The other ones, you can memorize that if you want. But most body fluids are neutral in their charge. When you're not doing anything, you are essentially neutral 
with some exceptions like your heart and, and neurons and that sorts of things that are always doing something to keep you alive. But generally you're essentially neutral. Like Switzerland. Yeah, totally. Neutral. You're sitting there fairly neutral. Yeah. Pure water, like pure water does not conduct electricity. Potassium, sodium, and the other electrolytes dissolved in the water carry this electrical charge. Cells need these electrolytes to transport and maintain electrical impulses. And, you know, oh, there's another podcast we should do is on like the electrolysis and or glycolysis electron transport chain, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, uh, without electrolytes, none of that will happen. Also without oxygen, none of that will happen. But I think most of you already know that part. <laughs> so we're going to talk about electrolytes really in pairs or groups, because they like to be in pairs. We like to be paired up, I guess. So let's start with potassium and sodium. So potassium and sodium ions act as the power generators inside the cells of your body. Sodium ions and, chl and chloride ions are concentrated in the extracellular fluid of the body, whereas potassium, as we said, are concentrated inside cells. Although sodium and potassium can leak through pores into and out of the cells, the high levels of potassium and low levels of sodium in the intracellular fluid are maintained by that sodium-potassium pump in the cell membrane. The sodium-potassium pump describes a mechanism in which sodium and potassium ions move in and out of the cell. When this happens, an electrical charge is produced. The sodium-potassium pump also responds to power requests from your nervous system. The resting potential of a cell is the amount of energy available when a cell is at rest. The body expends a great deal of energy operating the sodium-potassium pump. This resting potential is what allows for rapid responses to requests from your brain. I've heard it compared to a bow and arrow that is poised and ready to fire. An archer pulls on the bow and waits for a target, just like the sodium potassium is primed and ready for action. When a stimulated neuron makes a request, the sodium ion shoots like arrows into the cells, creating an explosion of energy. Sodium ions move first because of the uneven concentration between sodium and potassium ions. It takes a little longer for potassium ions to move outside the cell. When they do, the in and out flow of potassium and sodium creates polarization and reverse polarization. This is the action potential. Eventually, the ions settle down and return to a resting potential. And they return to that resting potential through the sodium potassium pump. Potassium pump. Yeah. Which takes energy. Yeah. And that's a, it's an important thing to remember is it all takes ATP which yeah. comes from all of that electron transport chain stuff that people love to talk about sometimes. But <laughs> if you have a, if you have a body, like it's great to think about this in, in theoretical terms, if you have a body that is aerobically making energy, so it's not having as much ATP, it may be hard for this sodium potassium pump to function. And that's sure. where exactly. you may get nerve cells that can depolarize and have trouble repolarizing or heart muscle mm -hmm that has trouble repolarizing because it has no energy and therefore it gets irritated. And I don't know, goes into ventricular fibrillation. Uh, so you can sort of see how all these start relating, right? So let's, let's move on and talk about calcium, phosphate, and magnesium. Again, we, we have a whole podcast on this if you're totally nerdy about it, but they really are necessary to discuss the three together. We're not gonna spend a lot of time talking about them, but. Uh, suffice it to say that all three are necessary to build and repair bones, teeth, help nerves function, and make muscles contract. The amount of phosphate in the blood affects the level of calcium in the blood. 
Calcium and phosphate in the body react in opposite ways. As blood calcium levels rise, phosphate levels fall. The parathyroid hormone regulates the levels of calcium and phosphate in the blood. Magnesium is needed for calcium absorption. When calcium is elevated in the blood, it stimulates the secretion of a hormone called calcitonin and suppresses the secretion of the parathyroid hormone. These hormones regulate the levels of calcium in our bones and our soft tissues. Parathyroid hormone drops calcium out of the bones and deposits it in the soft tissues, while calcitonin increases calcium in our bones and keeps it from being absorbed in our soft tissues. So, you know, calcium is a storage, or sorry, bones is the storage place for calcium. And it can, although they feel very solid for us, it can be depositing calcium or withdrawing it as it needs to in the bone. Now, it's not a super fast process. So, you know, often in say cardiac arrest, we'll or, or just a very sick intensive care patient, we will give them a gram of calcium because it's, it's not coming out of the bones as quickly as it's necessarily needed at that point. So don't not give your patient calcium thinking it'll just dissolve out of their bones eventually. Sufficient amounts of magnesium determine the delicate and important balance. So imbalances of calcium, phosphorus, and magnesium result in a number of serious clinical complications, arrhythmias, seizures, respiratory difficulties. These are ones that are just not good to have and are difficult to fix. The kidney plays a critical role in regulating serum levels of these ions and regulation of calcium, phosphate, and magnesium occurs in different parts of the nephron, involves lots of different channels, transporters, and pathways, and really just listen to the whole 30-minute podcast on them if you care so much about them. The last electrolyte we want to discuss is related to acid-base balance, and that's bicarbonate, which is an anion. And, and you can't obviously see us, but if you're not familiar, I'm not saying this to insult anyone, but the, the cations have a plus sign and the anions have a minus sign behind them. And it's always a good idea to write the electron or the charge of the mm. anion or cation. So you'll see bicarb often written as HCO3 with a little minus next to it. Mm. Um, and that's all that means, that plus or minus, if you weren't familiar with that. So we measure serum bicarbonate, uh, which tells us the total amount of carbon dioxide in the blood, which occurs mostly in the form of bicarbonate. CO2 is mainly a byproduct of various metabolic processes. It is transported to the lungs where it is breathed out. The lungs flush acid out of the body by exhaling CO2 through something called the carbonic acid equation. And if you don't know what that is, it's long and it looks complicated, but I, I've always, when I've taught, I've always called it the equation of life. If you can put something into the carbonic acid equation, a patient, and you can figure out which way things are shifting, you can figure out uh, intensive care medicine in like 10 minutes. So, so raising and lowering the respiratory rate alters the amount of carbon dioxide that is breathed out. Okay. Kidneys eliminate acids in the urine and they regulate the concentration of bicarbonate, a base in the blood. So acid-base changes due to increases or decreases in bicarbonate concentration occur more slowly than changes in CO2. So to sort of summarize that, basically your body creates CO2. It doesn't transport it as CO2. It transports it through the carbonic acid equation, more as a buffered bicarbonate and hydrogen ions. And then it goes through the carbonic acid equation back to CO2 at a point where it then is breathed out. So the, the kidneys can excrete bicarbonate as well. It takes a long time though. So that's why if you suddenly stop breathing, your CO2 level will go up and it won't mm -hmm. stay normal because your kidneys can't excrete it quickly enough. Yeah. Makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. 
there we go. Okay, that's a quick review of the most relevant electrolytes. So now let's talk about some specific imbalances that we see in critically ill patients, starting with hypo and hyponatremia, which is a common clinical problem in patients admitted to an ICU. In fact, studies have shown that many cases of dystatremia are required. Let me say that again. In <laughs> fact, studies have shown that many cases of dysnatremia are acquired after the patient is admitted to ICU and associated with poor prognosis. Hyponatremia is caused by the kidney's impaired ability to excrete sodium in the water, which requires urinary dilution, which is compromised in virtually all patients in the ICU. As we said, it's really all about the kidney. We also see hyponatremia when patients are given hypotonic fluids instead of balanced fluids. So severe hyponatremia leads to seizures and coma and then death. Is that all of them? Seizure, coma, death, Seizures, right? coma, death. Yeah, yeah. every drug. To, yeah, exactly. The important thing to remember in correcting hyponatremia is that it needs to be done slowly to prevent cerebral edema. There should be a protocol for correcting hyponatremia as it is a fairly complicated process. Um, you should have a protocol somewhere in your hospital and it's usually using hypotonic saline with or without a loop uh, diuretic and ensuring that the sodium increases at one to two milli equivalents per liter per hour and not more than eight to 12 milli equivalents in 24 hours. Really the take home message is that this is preventable. We need to ensure that we maintain kidney function by cellular perfusion and use the correct fluid, i.e. balanced fluid. On the opposite end, uh, patients in the ICU are also at higher risk of developing hypernatremia. They are predisposed for a number of reasons. They may have required sodium bicarb solutions to correct a metabolic acidosis. They have, often have an NG tube in, which increases GI fluid losses. Not to mention they receive lactulose, uh, which again keeps them regular, but also increases GI fluid losses. They may also have fluid losses through fever, drainages, open wounds. Remember, where water goes, sodium follows. Also, we may have given them far too much normal saline in our enthusiasm to correct any hypovolemia. So signs and symptoms that you might notice are changes in mental status, like uh, restlessness, irritability, lethargy, confusion, somnolence. If they are able to talk to you, they may complain of intense thirst. Again, you should have some type of protocol in correcting hypernatremia. In general, it is recommended that half of the water deficit be replaced in 12 to 24 hours, keeping an eye on the neurological status. Don't forget to account for the ongoing loss of water while you're correcting the hypernatremia. It may be, uh, it may be beneficial to measure both the plasma and urine um, electrolytes every one to two hours if you're trying to um, get them back to a normal state. Excellent. Let's move on to hypo and hyperkalemia or potassium. There's lots of interventions and medications given in critically ill patients that can predispose them to hypokalemia. One example, GI losses through aggressive NG suctioning or aggressive bowel regimes with lactulose enemas. Uh, diuretics are usually uh, often potassium-wasting diuretics. Sympathomimetics, insulin, dibutamine, they all increase renal potassium loss or drive extracellular potassium into the cells by the sodium-potassium pump. Generally speaking, the signs and symptoms for hypokalemia are largely neuromuscular. So paralysis, weakness, nausea, vomiting, respiratory muscle weakness, and the most concerning obviously are 
uh, cardiac arrhythmias, ST segment depression, T wave flattening or inversion, and the presence of U waves. So initially, you may need to treat the emergent symptoms of hypokalemia, i.e. cardiac arrhythmias, and then you would typically replace the potassium. And there's lots of different ways to give it. The preferred uh, route is orally if you can, but if you are giving it parenterally, don't forget that you should not be putting it in dextrose solutions because dextrose solution causes increased insulin secretion and prevents correction of extracellular potassium deficits. Also be aware with hypokalemia, you may see hypocalcemia and hypomagnesemia, which we'll talk about in a minute. So these patients are also predisposed to hyperkalemia, renal dysfunction, adrenal insufficiency with, with the stress response, tissue damage are all contributors to hyperkalemia, not to mention medications like beta blockers, potassium sparing diuretics, heparin, antibiotics, and NSAIDs. So like hypokalemia, the present of any emergent conditions like cardiac arrhythmias takes precedence over treatment of the hyperkalemia. You should have protocols for treating hyperkalemia, but the first step is usually to give IV calcium to antagonize the depolarizing effect of hyperkalemia. Potassium and calcium are also both positive ions or cations, and so they don't want to exist in the same space together. And so it's much easier for potassium to find somewhere else to hide. So uh, really lots of the treatments initially are to push the potassium in back into the cell and get it out of the blood where it won't have as much impact. And yeah. so we use insulin with 50% glucose is the most effective. We may give them K-exalate to uh, longer term, suck the, the potassium into the GI tract. And really, if you're not familiar, if you're treating these people and you're not familiar with emergent treatment of hyperkalemia, this is something easily found on UpToDate or a credible Google search of some form. There's, uh, there's some really good hyperkalemic protocols, um, but these are typically emergencies and, and it's a shotgun approach where you just, you hit them with everything all at once. You may also see Ventolin being given through, an, well, before COVID, I guess, through a nebulizer mask. You, you know, it, it's not as effective as the insulin and but there's just lots of different things that can push the potassium back into the cell. Understand though, you're not actually fixing the problem. You are yeah. just putting the potassium somewhere else. You still need to figure out why they were in that state and anticipate that once the calcium and the insulin and the Ventolin and the KX or whatever you're using, once those are gone, the potassium will just come back out of the cell into mm -hmm. the bloodstream and your potassium could go up again. So that emergent treatment is to stuff it somewhere. And then you need to figure out why they got there and reverse that problem. And it's um, often usually going to be kidneys for sure. Yeah. So calcium, magnesium, phosphate, as we've said, are, are intimately involved. So the first step that we're going to talk about is phosphate and hypophosphatemia. So low phosphate, the present Prevalence of hypophosphatemia is high in critically ill people and has been reported in up to 28% of ICU patients. The causes are plentiful, range from malnutrition, respiratory alkalosis, use of diuretics, GI losses. Like, are you trending? Are you seeing a trend here? Um, just being sick. Uh, yeah. You are. You also have to consider the underlying health condition that the patient currently has, uh, like diabetes, alcohol with alcohol misuse, which can predispose people to hypophosphatemia. Like many of the other electrolyte imbalances, you may see symptoms ranging from weakness, confusion, seizures, coma, respiratory failure, cardiac arrhythmias. And these can be treated with both PO or IV. 
phosphate. I, I will say like you're, you're seeing the same symptoms and these are critically ill patients. Yeah. You may be thinking, well, how do I know which one it is? The reality is we typically treat hyperkalemia first because that's the, you know, you, you get someone who's having cardiac arrhythmias. Uh, we usually assume it's going to be one of those first and give them some calcium and then find some time. You don't typically see a crash cart someone running with a crash cart yelling, get me the IV phosphate. It just doesn't happen. Um, so hypocalcemia is one of the most frequent electrolyte abnormalities in critically ill people and has been reported to be in the many as 90% of critically ill patients and is not surprisingly associated with increased mortality. Most common causes are renal dysfunction, sepsis, uh, massive transfusion of blood, and or IV fluids. This hypocalcemia is one that gets missed often. And, and we work in a large teaching facility and it gets missed often. So remember blood products are in bags that have sodium citrate as an anticoagulant. Cit citrate is rapidly cleared from the blood by the liver. However, if you're getting a lot of transfusions, the citrate can bind the plasma calcium and make them hypocalcemic. So the calcium is actually still there. It's just bound to citrate and it's ineffective. So if you have someone that you're giving massive transfusion to, I know in our hospital, I can't remember the exact number, but I think it's after four units, they get a gram of calcium and it's just, it's part of the protocol and, and the, the physician doesn't even get a choice. It just sort of comes taped to the fourth bag of blood. Hey, give the calcium. So calcium is most importantly needed for cardiac function. So people who you see having um, cardiac manifestations. So prolonged QT is one ventricular arrhythmias, congestive heart failure. Um, they need to be treated. Another one in critically ill patients is really, um, hypotension. If you have someone that you've resuscitated with a bit of fluid, they're on vasopressors and you're not getting anything out of them, a gram of calcium, cause it is, it does help with smooth muscle contraction a gram of calcium can make all the difference. And suddenly you see their blood pressure shoot up and you're like, oh, well, that was the problem. They needed some calcium. Little side note, does it matter whether we give calcium gluconate or calcium chloride to correct symptomatic hypocalcemia? One could argue, and this is my argument, if it's an emergency, it doesn't really matter, but calcium gluconate is preferred most of the time. Calcium chloride can be used for urgent or emergent situations as it provides three times more calcium than calcium gluconate. But typically what you'll see is the calcium chloride will be given in cardiac arrest or the imminent arrest and someone who needs like that ICU patient that's maybe getting some blood or, or has some hypotension and you're thinking their calcium might be low, will typically get calcium gluconate. The one that comes in the pre-filled box is calcium chloride if you're not sure which is which. As hypocalcemia is often accompanied by other electrolyte and acid-based disorders, you need to be vigilant. Calcium, magnesium, and phosphate are the three musketeers. So check for imbalances in all three, and they are all interrelated. We've talked about hypophosphatemia. Now let's talk about hypomagnesemia. Again, frequently seen in critically ill patients up to about 50%. These symptoms again are related to cardiac dysfunction, arrhythmias, and this is where you might see torsade de point. So another concern with hypomagnesemia, particularly with ventilated patients, is its effect on respiratory functions, airway hyperreactivity, wheezing, and impaired lung functions. Symptoms also include seizures, coma, and death, which, you know, <laughs> is the list on the list of every bad thing. Uh, hypomagnesemia is often associated with both hypokalemia and hypocalcemia. 
many of the causes for hypomagnesemia are the same as the others. GI losses, renal dysfunction, massive transfusion, alcoholism, starvation, malnutrition, and some medications. So again, the goals for treatment resolve the symptoms, return the serum magnesium concentration to normal. However, avoid hypermagnesemia, obviously. The important thing to remember with magnesium infusions, though, is that it should be done slowly because magnesium distributes into tissues slowly and is rapidly excreted by the kidney. So you could tip the patient hypermagnesemic quickly. However, they are still hypomagnesemic where the magnesium is needed. So giving a bolus doesn't necessarily help, the exception being uh, torsade de point cardiac arrest, where we will just give, uh, in my paramedic practice, it's four grams. I think some places is five grams. We'll just give that quickly as a bolus. It's like, yeah, you're dead. You need to not stay dead. Um, but generally, magnesium is something that's given slow, and that's why it's given slowly, because it's absorbed slowly. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That was we like- also, We can actually also use magnesium for, like you might see IV magnesium being used for uh, bad asthmatics too, right? Yes. Because of the, for the smooth muscle relaxation. Anyway, yes. can we talk? We're going to take a minute and talk a little bit about steroid use in critically ill patients, particularly in ARDS and pneumonia. So inflammation is central to the development of ARDS. And so the anti-inflammatory properties of steroids have been investigated extensively. Uh, the results have been mixed with many studies showing no significant improvement in mortality and long-term um, poor outcomes. And some recent data suggesting that prolonged methylprednisone prednisolone treatment reduces hospital mortality and it increases ventilator-free days. I'm talking too quickly, too much coffee. Pneumonia, which is a common condition in critical care, the mortality and morbidity remain high. Up to 30% of patients admitted to ICU with pneumonia will die. So the anti-inflammatory properties of corticosteroids have been proposed to reduce the pulmonary and systemic inflammation in severe pneumonia. However, again, the available evidence is conflicting. Currently, the guidelines do not recommend routine corticosteroid administration to adults with community-acquired pneumonia. There are still many research studies ongoing, so even while we're writing this, the practice may have changed. In any case, steroids are often used in critically ill patients, and this may also add to the electrolyte imbalance. That's why I'm talking about it. So steroids cause patients to be hyperglycemic and may require insulin drips, which could lead to both hypophosphatemia and hypokalemia. So it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because patients are sick, which makes them have electrolyte imbalances. <laughs> and the things that we do to treat them being sick may also add to the electrolyte imbalances. So it really is kind of finessing that art of caring for patients while their body is also trying to die or trying to get themselves better, right? It's a really kind of a tricky balance, isn't it? I, I agree. It's like, to, to me, the, the electrolytes, kidney electrolyte hormone stuff, that's the intensive care part of intensive care. Yeah. Because quite yeah, honestly, exactly. like ventilation is fairly, it, I'm not going to oversimplify it, but it's a fairly simple um, concept in a stable critical care patient. Um, yeah. you, you know, you're not changing the ventilator every two seconds. If you are, yeah. stop. And, and circulation, it's like, well, we, we have, you know, a pump, a pipe and fluids and, and 
it's your pumps working, it's the pipes, give them some drugs. Like those two are fairly uh, simple when compared to the electrolytes that yeah. the whole body is fighting against itself for the electrolyte or it has too much or, and as we said, it all comes back to the kidney. Yeah. So to summarize, oh my God, we made it, everyone. Yes. We made it there. <laughs> this podcast may have been seven hours long. <laughs> so bloody, sorry, fluid volume and electrolyte concentration normally are both maintained within very narrow limits, regardless of the clinical situation. For the most part, homeostasis is preserved primarily by the kidneys and controlled by feedback loops. Just remember, it's all about the kidney. And we cannot, for those of you who work on, um, you know, in non-critical care emerge areas who listen, protect your patient's kidneys more than anything else. Yeah. Check their urine output. If they're starting to look sick, ask them to pee. If they don't have a Foley, ask them to pee in a bottle every hour. Like it's better than nothing. And you'll go in and check their SAP monitor like every 15 minutes. And quite honestly, that's going to stay fine until they're dead but you'll notice their kidneys starting to get injured and insulted. Give credence to kidneys. Most body fluids are neutral in charge, which means that cations and anions are in balance. Cells need electrolytes to transport and maintain electrical impulses. Electrolyte imbalances are seen commonly in critically ill patients, either from their clinical condition or from our treatment decisions. Okay, sodium. Imbalances are all about maintaining renal perfusion and judicious administration of IV fluids and correct it slowly. Imbalances in potassium, calcium, magnesium, and phosphate all cause cardiac arrhythmias, neurological symptoms, and really should be treated based on your guidelines and, and what you do in your institution. Um, we typically treat potassium first, calcium second, magnesium takes forever. <laughs> and phosphate's pretty rare to, to have patients yeah. with phosphate infusions. With potassium imbalances, treat the emergent symptom, cardiac arrhythmia, prior to figuring out why their potassium got this way. Okay. Calcium, magnesium, and phosphate imbalances are usually threefold. So all of these should be monitored together and correcting one can cause another to go out of whack. So those three should always, if you're ordering blood work and someone says, just do a magnesium, pick all three. Mm -hmm. You can blame us. Yes. In hypocalcemia, calcium gluconate is preferred over calcium chloride with the exception of the cardiac arrest ease of get, getting it in a pre-filled syringe. When treating hypomagnesemia, infuse magnesium slowly and magnesium may also be given to aid in bronchodilation as it is a smooth muscle relaxant. That's one that can throw some people off if you've not had that experience is why am I giving magnesium to this asthmatic? And it's not because they're hypomagnesemic necessarily. If giving steroids, remember patients will be hyperglycemic and maybe on insulin infusions, which would predispose them to hypophosphatemia and hypokalemia. Okay, so there's, in summary, there's 15 bullet points to remember, <laughs> which I think, you know, honestly just illustrates the complexity of this. And, and this you know, electrolyte disturbances, unless you're an, an intensivist or, or ICU nurse that like loves this stuff. For the most part, I'd say clinically, lots of us stand around when you get a really weird blood work result. And it's like, oh God, okay. And their calcium's like zero. Which one is that? Which one does this cause? And it's kind of a group effort. Even some of the eMERGE physicians I work with will be like pulling out up to date or an app and be like, yeah. 
if the calcium is like, there's little calculators for everything, right? If the calcium's this, the magnesium should be this. Oh, that one's out of whack too. And all that yeah. kind of stuff. So, but I think it does help us because I think sometimes when we're trying to debate about who should we be doing blood work on and what type of blood work should we be doing? I think it is helpful to understand some of this and to say, yes, maybe this patient does us, you know, require us to do our electrolytes where we check our kidney function. And, you know, the patient's on a whole slew of meds, including uh, blood pressure medication and everything. So there's a reason why we check electrolytes, right? Like that's why we do chem aids. And that's why sometimes physicians will ask you to, can you add a calcium magnesium phosphate? So I think you're right. I think that there's such a list of different summaries to kind of show the complexity of what is there. And I think what we are trying to illustrate perhaps is that there is some complexity to that situation, but to understand that there's a reason behind it. And we're trying to figure out maybe some of the simplest reasons for why this patient has this symptomology. If the electrolytes are okay, it kind of gives us pause to say, okay, well, the body's doing what it needs to do. Or if the electrolytes are out of whack, it gives us a starting point to say, okay, so why are they out of whack? What's going on in this body? What other tests uh, can we do? But it's a, it's, a, it's a great dipstick to see how our bodies are actually um, doing at any given point in time, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we hope this wait for the part two has been worthwhile. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, we will... I have Talk nothing very soon. Yeah, I have nothing exciting to say. Have been, yeah, we have been a little bit sporadic. And it's not that we are uh, less interested in getting these out there. Um, it has been a very challenging couple of years as we come out of this uh, uh, pandemic to an endemic state. Um, but it certainly has affected Landon and our ability um, to meet properly and actually to have the energy, quite frankly, uh, to prepare for some of these uh, and to organize time. So please, it's not because it's there's a lack of commitment in getting this information to you. It's just uh, being able to prioritize this in, in the midst of everything else that's going on. So we hope that you're all keeping yourself safe, that you are trying to find that work-life balance, trying to get that energy back. I know it is difficult not to listen to all the noise that is out there, but we are still very grateful to all of you who are turning up every day, um, who are still invested in healthcare and providing uh, quality care to your patients. You may not feel that it is being appreciated, but definitely we are very proud of all of the nurses who every day get up and get to work and do the best that they can for their patients. So from Landon and I, we would like to say thank you for that continued uh, passion and commitment you have for the nursing profession. So keep up that good work. See you next month. Alrighty, bye-bye. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursum.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursumCast and also find us on Facebook at Nursum Podcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, 
ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education, www.prneducation.ca.